So if you'd like uh, to turn with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 1, uh, we'll begin by reading the word of the Lord together. Uh, the sermon text for this morning is from verses 4 or 5 through to 14, uh, but we'll begin uh, in verse 1 and read uh, the whole chapter together. <clears throat> so Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved up righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Having heard the word of the Lord, let's come to him in prayer. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we come before you now and we ask that you would hear us this morning, you would hear our prayers, that you would speak to us, that you would be gracious to us, that as we hear your word preached this morning, we would have ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have to say. And we ask that by the work of your spirit, you would apply these things that we have heard this morning to our hearts, that we may go out from here changed, that we may go out from here more in line with, uh, with the image of Christ, that we may desire to do your will, that we may desire to be sanctified and to do good to all, that we may reflect our Savior, Jesus Christ, in all things. Give me words to say, Give me, may they be words of grace, of kindness, and may they be words that build up your people this morning. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so on a dark night, about a hundred years ago, maybe a little bit more now, a Scottish missionary couple found themselves surrounded by cannibals intent on taking their lives. The terror-filled night they that terror-filled night, they fell to their knees and prayed that God would protect them. Intermittent with prayers, the missionaries heard the cries of the savages and expected them to come through the door at any moment. But as the sun began to rise, to their astonishment, they found that the natives were retreating into the forest. The couple's hearts soared to God. It was a day of rejoicing. 
Now the missionaries bravely continued their work, and a year later, the chieftain of that tribe was converted. As the missionary spoke with him, he remembered the horror of that night. He asked the chieftain why he and his men had not killed them. The chieftain replied, who were all those men with you? The missionary answered, why? There were no men with us. They were just my wife and myself. The chieftain began to argue with him, saying, But there are hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling about your house, so we could not attack you. These were all angels sent to protect the missionaries from harm. And in preparation for the sermon this morning, I came across many such stories of the wondrous works of angels towards man. And in scriptures, we also find stories like Elisha also experienced such angelic deliverance. Protecting Elisha at Dothan from the Syrians, it was shown to his servant a great multitude of angels on the hills around the city. 2 Kings 6 records the event. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. We could be forgiven for falling at their feet if we came face to face with them ourselves, as many saints throughout history and through Scripture have done. We can also sympathize with the temptation that these Hebrews are facing, that the angels are are the powerful ones, and they are the ones that should be worshipped. In the face of all these things, in the face of such temptation, in the face of such glory, we find the rebuttal of the author. Christ is the one to whom all worship and honor is owed. He is the righteous king over all, the, over all whose kingdom will not end. And it's my hope and desire that this morning we will see Christ for who he is, the only begotten Son of God who is ruler over all, who was here yesterday, is here today, and will forever be. He is the Emmanuel, the King the one who was worshipped by angels at his birth and who continues to be worshipped now and forevermore. This Christ is our King and Saviour, and there is none besides him. It is my hope that as we behold him, we would live in light of that. And so this morning, we'll look at it under three headings this morning. Firstly, we'll look at Christ the Son. Secondly, Christ the Ruler of Righteousness. And finally, Christ the Everlasting King. There is Christ the Son, Christ the ruler of righteousness, and Christ the everlasting King. Beginning in verse 4, look with me there. Christ the Son, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him as a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Having proceeded to claim that Christ's name and position is superior to that of angels in verse 4, that Christ has inherited, um, as he says, having become as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited, that is having sat down in the rightful place that is his by, by, by place as much as it is by name, We find these words, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The answer is a resounding, none of them. That's the implication of what this is saying. The expectation of the answer is that to no angel 
for all of time has God ever said these words, Today you are my son, I have begotten you. Yet these words are perhaps some of the most debated words in all of church history. That you are my son, today I have begotten you. What does it mean that God has begotten Christ? What does it mean for God to be Father and Son and Holy Spirit? What does it mean for God to be triune, to be Trinity? Is there a sense in which one is superior to other? Or was there potentially a time when the Son was not, when he came into being as a Son? Is that what it potentially means, that the Father begat the Son? These questions are perplexed and continue to perplex to this day. Some claim today that Christ was the literal firstborn, that he was the first created thing of God's, therefore he is superior, therefore the inheritance is his. That's, that's how the argument goes, and he is preeminent because he was first in order of creation. Others claim that Christ is inferior and subordinate to the Father in some form. They take the revealed Trinity, the, thing, the way that we can perceive it, the way that we see it, that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then they take that and they take the way it's revealed to us and they put that back into the essence of God, into the being of God for all eternity. And this is a drastic misunderstanding of what is being said of the Son in these passages. For what is being argued here is not that there was a time when the Son was not and then he came into being. That is not what the author is saying when it says that he has begotten the Son. He is also not saying that the Son is inferior in some sense as a, as a human Son is inferior to their Father. Instead, what is being spoken of here is what is called the eternal generation of the Son. And for the life of me, I cannot come up with any other way to try and grasp these ideas because there is just no other words. The words cannot begin to describe the Trinity. Words cannot begin to describe the actual entirety of what it means to be Trinity. But we can believe and we can know the things that have been revealed to us. And so we have come up with a term, by we I mean theologians before me, have come up with a term called eternal generation of the Son. That is, that the Son comes forth from the Father's essence for all of eternity. There was never a time when the Son was not of the Father. There was never a time when the Father was not the Father and the Son was not the Son and the Holy Spirit was not the Holy Spirit. So let me give a quick example. And I'm sure most of us, in some ways, have experienced the joy of a newborn baby. Either your own or someone else's. The exclamation, oh, he's got your nose, or she's got your eyes. We say these things because children are produced after the physical essence of their parents. He is his father's son, we may say. The origin of the children is their fathers and mothers. Their physical features, their character, is generated from their parents. Now, though this falls drastically short of the trinity and the eternality of things, um, for God is eternal and we are finite, and we cannot begin to understand entirely what this is, we can get a sense of what it means when we look at our generation, when we look at our fathers begetting us, our mothers begetting us, the way that we are born from our parents. And we may struggle to grasp the depths of what it means that the Son is eternally generated from the Father as we can only think in these created terms. We can only think in ways that we can understand. But we can use it in some way as an, anal as an analogy 
for the generation of the, fa- of the Son from the Father. God has accommodated himself to our created minds. He has given us these terms. Today I have begotten you. And we go, well, I was begotten of my Father. He says, you are my Father, I am a son. We go, I am a son, I have a father. Or I am a daughter, I have a mother, I have a father. We can understand in some sense what it means that the Father is the Father and the Son is the Son. Um, and he has done this in order that he may in some way impart the beauty of himself to us. He has said these words to us in order that we may get a glimpse into what it means for God to be triune as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We say, and Scripture testifies, that the Son is begotten of the Father because they share the same essence. As we share the same essence of our fathers and mothers, so the Son shares in the same essence as the Father. Though the language may seem strange, it may seem unfamiliar, it may seem old to us, we don't use these terms anymore. We just say, I had a child, or you know, I was born. We don't say, I beget a child. It communicates something theologically beautiful. For the Son to be begotten of the Father is to say that the Son is generated from the true God. This is not something that at one point was not and now is. For if that is the case, then the essence of the Father is not Father and the Son not Son, because there was a point when they were not Son and Father, and therefore they are not God and we have no Savior. As one theologian writes, Matthew Barrett, wonderful guy, haven't met him, but he's fantastic. Um, He says this, If the Son's generation did fall within time, then not only is there a time when the Son was not, but there was a time when the Father was not Father. And if there was a time when the Father was not, then there was a time when the Trinity was not. Instead, as the Nicene Creed says, we must say this along with the Nicene Creed is the inherited faith that is ours that has been handed down to us. We must say this, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, And then it goes on to say, a couple of lines down, very God of very God, that is that they share the same nature entirely, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. This is really important that we wrap our heads around. This is really important that we come in some way to um, apprehend it or to... uh, to assent to it in some way. We can't fully comprehend what this means for us. We can't fully comprehend the Trinity, but we can apprehend it or grasp it. We can hold on to it as the, rev- as the revelation to us. This is the foundation of all that we believe, that Christ, having completed his work in this world, has entered into the fullest sense of sonship. After his suffering, says F.F. F. Bruce, after his suffering had proved the completeness of his obedience, that is what Hebrews, uh, the, the first part of Hebrews 1 was talking about, after he had suffered and proved the completeness of his obedience as son, he was then raised to the Father's right hand. And as Romans 1, 4 says, Jesus, quote, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. He is truly and utterly and eternally of the same nature with the Father. 
The Son has always been the Son, and the Father has always been the Father, and now the Son goes and sits at, his right hand, at the right hand of the Father, his rightful place. Yet, as Paul proclaims in Acts 13, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The Son has always eternally been the Son. The Father has always eternally been the Father. And yet, there was a time in history when the Son became the Son of God and now sits at God's right hand. And that was proved to us in his resurrection. For it was Christ's exaltation to the Father's right hand that proved his superiority over angels as the Son of God. As the name he inherited, Son, is more excellent than theirs. Christ is the Son in human flesh. He is perfect God and perfect man. He is not two, but one without any confusion, but completely unified in the person of Christ. He is the only Son of God who took on the form of man, our form, and he humbled himself, even to the point of death on a cross. And he did this so that now we might be called sons of the living God, inheritors with Christ, inheritors of the new creation, of the new birth. Michael Bird says this, One cannot believe in the Father without believing in the Son of God, and the, and the Son and the Spirit. And one cannot cleave to the Son without cleaving to the Spirit and the Father. And one cannot receive the Spirit without receiving the Father and the Son. And so we experience the full benefits of the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through Christ the Son taking on our form. He has taken on our form. He has come down to us. He's taken on our sin. And then he has gone and he has he has died and he's resurrected and now he's gone and sits at the Father's right hand in order that we may be known by the Father and by God. And it's only because of this absolute and full divinity of the, of the Son that we have this. Christ had to be the Son in order for all of these benefits to be applied to us. That we can know God as our Father, have the redeeming work of Christ applied to us through the sanctification of the Spirit. No angel or created being could ever confer onto us the full fellowship with God in Trinity. So Christ is the Son. Because as the Son, He is truly God, at His birth we find the angels in all of their glory and splendor praising God in the presence of the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased, they sang. At the angels praise Christ as they worship the Son before the throne, so we too also ought to worship him, for he is our God, the only God, eternal. He has taken upon himself our body of sin in order that we may be known as children of God. So, as Paul says in Romans, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And the will of God is your sanctification, that each day we may be made more and more like our Savior. As the Heidelberg Catechism so wonderfully puts it, 
but we do good because Christ by his spirit is also renewing us to be like himself so that in all our living we may show that we are thankful to God for all he has done for us so that he may be praised through us so that he may be praised through us so it was important that we wrap our heads around these things and understand that Christ as son had to be divine and had to be human for in his body he took upon himself our sin and he's laid that on the cross and now as we go on in the passage we see that as Christ is divine and human bringing these things together in one in his body he now rules in righteousness reading verse 7 onwards the passage moves on to contrast the work of the angels to the work of the sun and it says this of the angels he says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire but of the sun he says your throne O God is forever and ever and a scepter of your of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions you see angels are mere messengers they are mere messengers sent to do the bidding of God sent to protect those who are gods we saw earlier in that illustration of the story of those missionaries the angels were sent to protect the humans they were sent to protect and guard against that stuff which comes against the gospel they were preaching that is what is meant by saying he makes his angels winds and his flame and his ministers a flame of fire and his wind goes out and accomplishes its purpose and dies as fire completes its course then burns out also angels are exclusively for the service of God and their purpose is bound up in that and then it is complete not though the Sun for the psalmist says his throne is forever and ever in the face of temptation to submit to persecution and worship angels we are encouraged to look back to the promise that God had made to David God promised to him that one of his offspring would sit on the throne forever and ever the expectation here is that that rule would also be conducted in justice and righteousness in accordance with the law of God something that no king ever lived up to we see David sinned with Bathsheba and he killed her husband Solomon collected riches and wives and was corrupted king after king in the line of David committed sin ignoring God's rule they lived in their sin they loved their sin they reveled in unrighteousness the corruption among Israel's kings was so great that it drove King Jehoiakim when confronted with the word of God to repent it can, he was it drove him to slice off piece by piece sections from the scroll and burn them in the fire Jeremiah 36 24 records these events with these words saying yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all of these things all of these words was afraid nor did they tear their garments what great corruption and hardness of heart pervaded Israel and the people of God yet Christ the Son of God sits enthroned forever and ever he delights not in wickedness as Israel's king past kings did but because he is God he loved righteousness and rules by righteousness therefore he is anointed the author says with the oil of gladness this anointing is referring to the heavenly joy that was his as 
king of kings. The same joy that Hebrews mentions in chapter 12 says, who for the joy set before him, that is that heavenly joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Though we also experience joy at Christ's exaltation as our Lord and King, his joy surpasses even that of ours, for he delights to do the will of the Father. And as he was perfectly submitted to the Father, he has perfect and complete and utter joy at doing that. So pondering these things then, we need not fear a cruel and heartless king, one unmoved by the law of God and hard in the face of injustice. We need not fear the threat of Israel's kings and rulers like them. Instead, the Son, who is our King, is the very Word of God, who is Himself truth. He is righteous in all He does. Righteousness manifests itself in the person of Christ. He was tempted as, he, as we are, yet without sin. What a wonderful revelation this is to us. The only God, Lord over all, has been born to us as a baby. He grew up and was completely righteous in all that he did. He sought to do his Father's will in all things. And now, after making purification for sins, he has risen and now sits enthroned for all of eternity. Our, our Savior is also our King. Where human kings have failed time and time again, where men have failed to uphold the law of God and perfectly executing righteousness and justice in all that they do, starting with Adam and continuing on through history, we now have one who sits enthroned, whose scepter, which is his symbol of his rule, is righteousness. He is not only righteousness in himself, but he is righteousness for us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. This Christ was incarnate as man, born of the Virgin Mary, in order that he would be made sin. That is, he took all of our sin and iniquity upon himself. And this was necessary because it is a man who sinned, so man must pay for his sin. Yet, and also being God, he had the power by that divinity to bear the entire weight of God's wrath. And that day when Christ hung on the tree, he bore in his own body all the sin that we have ever done or ever will do. He took that upon himself and he took the curse that was due for us, the curse of death and judgment from God. In all of his perfections, he drained the cup of wrath that was given to him. For you see, Christ not only rules in righteousness, but he has also become righteousness for you. The eternal Son, who is the creator of all, has humbled himself to death for you. He did that so that we would all be reconciled to the Father through the work of the Spirit in Christ's body. This is why the incarnation is wonderful to us. This is why we celebrate at this time of year. Our Savior is a man, so that he might take our sins upon himself. He is also God in order that he might rise again, defeating the power of sin and death. Sin now no more has dominion over you, for Christ has defeated even death in his resurrection. 
He now takes his seat at the right hand of God, ruling in righteousness and restore to us righteousness and life, bringing us into that kingdom. This is no mere angel. This is the eternal Son of God. Therefore, believe in this gospel that Christ is for you. Because of the grace given to us in Christ, you truly have your sins forgiven and have been made right with God. Having been been made partakers in his salvation and kingdom. The author then moves on to encourage these Christians that this salvation is eternal. Finally, Christ's kingdom is everlasting. Verse 10, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. As sinful rulers gain traction, as we see a moral decline in our society, we may be tempted to think that perhaps Christ's kingdom is somehow failing. Perhaps the world is gaining upon Christ's rule. In the midst of seemingly overpowering odds, I imagine these Christians that the book of Hebrews is written to also felt the same way. They were few, and the others were vast many. But in view of this, we're given a wonderful picture of the eternality and security of Christ's kingdom. These words come to us from a psalm of a broken man, one at the end of himself. The psalm has a beautiful description, and it says this, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint, and he pours out his complaint before the Lord. In the midst of the psalmist's affliction, he says these words, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. The great comfort for the afflicted is that the kingdom of heaven is eternal, for God is eternal. <clears throat> what a wondrous thought this is, that the Son who came to this earth among us is also the one whose hands formed the heavens above us and who laid the foundations of the earth beneath us. Just as we change our clothes each day and ball them up and chuck them out into the wash, so also this earth which was created at the hands of God must also one day pass away. Like a robe, he will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. As it was through Christ, all things came to be. The psalm is applied to him also as God. Just as the Father is creator and sustainer, so Christ is also creator and sustainer. The angels marveled at his creation. They shouted for joy at the earth's inception. Yet it was through Christ that they were created. The angels themselves were created by his, uh, his commanding, creating voice. Therefore, Because Christ is eternal, his kingdom is also eternal. Heaven and earth may pass away, but Christ's throne is forever and ever. Our salvation is steadfast and secure in the eternal Son of God. God made flesh for us. The temptations to go back to the old ways or cast Christ aside fall away when we consider these things. For what can come against an eternal kingdom? Though it may seem like heaven and earth against us, though we may feel like we make no progress in sin, the promise of Christ stands that one day, one day we will be united with him in glory in his kingdom. 
There is nothing in heaven or on earth that can come against this kingdom. For as Christ eternally preceded the earth as son, he will far outlive it as the son of God and our savior. There is nothing more secure in all the earth than your salvation. It is bought by the blood of the Son, made man, who has brought you in by his righteousness. And he sits at the Father's right hand until all his enemies should be brought under his feet. One day, Christ will return, and every knee will bow before him, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. This is no mere man. This is the eternal Son. So then angels, though they may tower at 50 feet high, though they may encircle against our enemies with swords of flaming fire, though they may be glorious in all that they do, they cannot compare in any way to this Christ who became man for us. Christ is Savior, and these are all ministering spirits, it says, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They are sent out for our sake. They are given to us, whose Savior is the only begotten Son of God made flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered, died, and was buried, who was resurrected and now reigns in righteousness at the Father's right hand, of which we are members and inheritors of all its benefits, if we have faith in and believe in his work for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truthfulness. We thank you for its purity. But above all, we thank you for the gospel that it contains. We thank you for the revelation that we have of Christ the Son for us. We thank you that in him we can now call you our Father. That in him we can now be filled with the Holy Spirit and sanctified after his image. And we look forward to the day when we will be united with him in glory, when we will sit and worship at your throne, when we will say with the angels, glory to God in the highest, when we will sing Hosanna, Hosanna to your name. We look forward to this time and we thank you that through, your work, uh, through the work of your Son and through the power of your Holy Spirit, we can have faith in that we can know these things, that we can believe them. We ask that you would increase our faith, we ask that we would see more clearly Christ our Savior. And we ask that these truths may be motivation for us, that as we go out into this world, we may seek to please him in all that we do so that your name may be glorified in all the earth. We pray for these things. We pray for the increase of your kingdom, for the, purity, for the pure preaching of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.